You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Hello, this is Josh King. I'm an elder at Meridian Church. And this is the first sermon in a series on the covenants. Whenever I preached it, the audio failed to be recorded, and so I'm going to be reading it. Normally, whenever that kind of thing happens, we just call it a wash, move on. But because this is a series we wanted to be able to refer others to because of its importance in uh, Reformed theology, we wanted to have it recorded for future use. So this is me reading this sermon. I'm going to try to imagine... Uh, an audience in front of me to capture as much of the feel of a sermon as I can, but I I don't think that can be exactly recaptured, but I, I pray this will be used of God for the blessing of the saints. We're going to be looking at Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. That will be our focus. I'm going to read all of chapter 2. Ephesians 2, 1 through 22. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
So this is the inaugural sermon on a series on the covenants. And we begin by asking why. Why a series on the covenants? And this sermon is intended to answer just that question. My hope is that you profoundly feel the necessity, the weightiness of the answer to that question. And the answer in short is this. Why study the covenants? Because they're yours. The Bible is divided up into an Old Testament and a New Testament. And Testament being an unfortunate English rendering coming to, coming to us from uh, the Latin translation of the, the Greek scriptures. And uh, the idea is... intended by that word testament is covenant. So we have an old covenant and a new covenant. And it's true that those labels are man-made, but I believe you will see in this series that they are good and true. And I hope that by them you understand this. You cannot understand your Bible if you do not understand covenant. Covenant is like the spine of your Bible holding all its pages together. The Bible is thoroughly covenantal. The covenants are yours the way the Bible is yours, because the Bible is itself covenantal through and through, and because the covenants are yours, the Bible is yours. Now, my aim with this sermon, I must admit, is not Paul's aim with the text that we're looking at, but I believe this text is the most potent text in Scripture to answer the question, why study the covenants? But it's not my question that Paul has in mind as he writes this. And in the same way, whenever you pick up a biography of Winston Churchill, you will undoubtedly learn something about World War II. That's not the subject of the book, but you will learn something of World War II. And so likewise here, Paul's not directly speaking about covenants. It's not the question he has in mind. But what he says has bearing and and gives a clear answer, the clearest, I think, as to why it's critical for us to understand covenant. So, we must not only be clear as to what Paul's aim is in distinction to my own, so as to make sure I'm not manipulating the text, but also because I believe that what Paul's aim is adds incredible weight to the point that I want to make. So Paul's aim is this, that in being reconciled to God, Jew and Gentile alike, in being reconciled to God, are reconciled to God together, and thus they are reconciled to one another. And so, here I am, I'm wanting to speak about covenant, and what does this have to do with covenant? And the answer you'll see is everything. Because we fail to understand the concept of covenant as coloring everything Paul says here, we too cheaply take up this text to deal with ethnic animosity and racial prejudice and to promote unity and diversity in the church. Now, our text has implications for those issues, but it's saying something much richer and more profound than just that. And to catch something of the magnitude of what Paul is communicating here, step back and and get the lie of the land. Uh, Before before we jump into our text, let's, let's look at what's surrounding it. Paul begins with, therefore. So this whole reflection of thought that runs from verses 11 through 22 that whole reflection of thought that, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, therefore remember, it, it comes as a conclusion to what Paul has said in verses 1 through 10. And on close, closer examination, you'll see that this the text we're going to focus on is not just a conclusion to verses 1 through 10. They are parallel to 1 through 10. In both instances, Paul speaks of what sinners were outside of Christ, and then who they now are in Christ. 
But whereas in verses 1 through 10, Paul dealt with all humanity in general, here he focuses on the Gentiles in particular. And so, where in verses 1 through 3, you see the depravity of all mankind in general, in verses 11 through 12, you see the deprivation of the Gentiles in particular. And concerning the Gentiles, this is what Paul says. He speaks of their previous state in verses 11 through 12, then their present state in verse 13, and then the grounds of their present state in verses 14 through 18. And in conclusion, he restates their present state again in verses 19 through 22. And we'll be focusing on verses 11 through 13 in particular now. So the Gentiles' previous state, verses 11 and 12, as we we look to their past state, it's clear that the likely division Paul is speaking into is more substantial than ethnicity. The division in mind isn't flat. It's three-dimensional. It doesn't just involve uh, division on a horizontal plane, but vertically as well. It doesn't just involve earthly hostility, but heavenly enmity. And yet, Paul opens with what he appears to be saying is a superficial distinction in verse 11. Remember that you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. He's he's telling these Gentiles nothing of what he wants them to remember at this point. He's simply identifying who he's speaking of, who he's speaking to. He's speaking to these Gentiles. And he goes on to identify them by what another group calls them. These Gentiles in the flesh are called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Both of their identities are in the flesh. And I think Paul seemingly disparages circumcision here for two reasons. First, because of what he's going to say. The thing that has changed is not that the Gentiles have been circumcised and thus become proselyte Jews. And second, because circumcision alone was a sign, it was not the sign, but it was what was signified thereby. And that is the real distinction between Jew and Gentile. Circumcision alone is a sign. And it was not the sign, but what was signified thereby that's the real distinction between Jew and Gentile. So in contrast to this superficial distinction, Paul lists five real deficiencies the Gentiles had in verse 12. First, they were separated from Christ. This is the most horrifying description that can be given of any person or people without Christ. Of everything that Paul says about sinful man in chapter 2, of all that is said about sinful man in the New Testament, this is the worst. This description serves as a heading over all the other deficiencies the Gentiles have to deal with. The reason why the Gentiles are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world, is because they are separated from Christ. And remember that the Gentiles are being spoken of particularly here in distinction from the Jews. How is it that the Jews were not separated from Christ? Is Paul saying that all Israel was saved? He says the opposite of that in Romans 2, Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11. But it was to the Jews in particular that the promise of Christ was made. And this is why Jesus could tell that Samaritan woman at the well, you, a Samaritan, you worship what you do not know. We, the Jews, 
We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, John 4.22. Salvation is from the Jews. That underlies the distinction Paul makes here. A distinction Paul further unfolds when he preaches to the Jews at the synagogue at Antioch Pisidia, saying, Of this man's offspring, David, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised, Acts 13.23. The Jews were promised Christ, and those who believed in that promise are given Christ. The Gentiles have no such promise. They had no such promise unless they became Jews. And second, being not Jews, they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And the word that you have as commonwealth here can refer either to citizenship or the state of which one is a citizen. The Christian standard carries the other sense, saying that they were excluded from the citizenship of Israel. But more important which way we should render this word is that, is that we understand that both senses are should be in our mind. There's a state of which the Gentiles have no citizenship naturally, Israel. That's the point. And not being part of Israel also means all these other things listed here. It means being separated from Christ. That's who the promises were made to, Israel. It means being strangers to the covenants of promise and thus without hope and without God. And that last one, without God, can really bring out the significance of what it means that they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Israel was God's chosen people out of all the nations. He dwelt in their presence. He was with them. He tells them in Amos 3, 2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. In response to the covenant God made with him, David exclaimed, Who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods? And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Yahweh, became their God. 2 Samuel 7, 23-24 Israel was utterly unique in how she stood with God. This is why, biblically, there were these two groups in the Old Testament. There was Israel and there were all other nations, the Gentiles. Psalm 147 He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise Yahweh. And third, to not be part of Israel meant that they were strangers to the covenants of promise. At this point, I hope you're sensing something of why we've come to this text. Why, to answer that question, why a series on the covenants? Now, it's tempting to just plunge into the implications that the text has for our question at this point, but let's hold off a bit longer. Slow down. Look at these words. Covenants, plural. Promise, singular. Now, which covenants are in view and what promise is held forth in them, common to them all? Specifically, I believe Paul has in mind the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants here, all made exclusively with Israel. And what's the promise held forth in them? Well, Paul's already told you. It's the promise of the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ, the Son of David. He's the promise. And thus, fourth, being strangers to these covenants, and thus having no part in this promise, they are without hope. All humanity 
you'll see in this series soon, relates to God covenantally in Adam as cursed of God. The only hope of salvation that there is. The Gentiles are estranged from it because it was given to the Jews in the covenants made with Abraham, the covenant made with Israel at Sinai, the covenant made with David, and so they are without hope. And so can you see fifth just how without God the Gentiles are? The two words without God are a compound word in the Greek that you're familiar with. It's the word we get uh, our word atheist from, atheos. Most of the Gentiles were polytheist, and as polytheists, they were atheist, and having many gods, they had no god. They were godless. See, something much more terrifying is being said than that they deny the true God. What we're being told is that the true God has denied them. They are without God. To the Gentiles, God nowhere promises them as Gentiles in the Old Testament. There's no instance where he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And so in summary, here's the fivefold deprivation of the Gentiles as stated by William Hendrickson as it existed before Christ. They are Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. And what is said of the Gentiles is the inverse of what Paul says of the Jews in Romans 9, 5, 4-5. They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So the Gentiles are not only depraved, they are disadvantaged. But there's this. In Romans 9, Paul goes on to speak of national Israel's failure to believe, and thus their exclusion from God's saving grace. Whereas here, Paul goes on to speak of the Gentiles being brought near to God. You see, all of this is who the Gentiles were. They're being called on now to remember who they were. They were dead, but now alive. This is what Paul says in chapter 2. That's true of all the saints. But now in speaking to the Gentiles in particular, he says they were separated from Christ. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God. But now, what? If previously the contrast was dead, but now alive, what's the contrast now? You were separated, but you were alienated, but you were strangers, but you were without hope, but you see the implication. But let's not jump to to a conclusion only by inference here. What does Paul go on to explicitly say about their present state in verse 13? These Gentiles, us, We who were once far off have been brought near, and this nearness happens in Christ Jesus by the blood of Christ. Union to Christ's purpose and the application of His work brings us near. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Brought near, near to what, or rather to whom? Near to God. Verses 17 through 18, Paul says, He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We Gentiles are no longer separated from Christ. We are in Christ, and in Christ we are brought near to God in the Spirit. We are reconciled to the Trinity by the Trinity. We have hope. And now the remaining questions, so we're not without God, we're not without hope. 
The remaining questions are, what is our relationship to Israel? And what about our relation then to the covenants of promise? Now, each of those questions deal with an, er- an error that Christians potentially make in taking up the Bible. And the first question, what about our relationship to Israel, relates to the error of dispensationalism. And the second question, what about our relation to the covenants of promise, relates to the error of paedobaptism as practiced by our Presbyterian and Dutch Reformed brothers who are also covenant theologians. So let's take each of these in turn. We'll, we'll find our answer in reflecting on verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. What is our relation to as Gentiles to the commonwealth of Israel? Where Paul said we were alienated, now he says we are not aliens. What is our relation to the commonwealth of Israel? Well, dispensationalism answers there is no relationship. What's dispensationalism? I'd venture that it's still the dominant overarching framework that most evangelical churches bring to the Bible. I don't believe they bring it out of the Bible, but they bring it to the Bible. Dispensationalists believe that God has worked differently in seven different dispensations throughout history, but the major premise of dispensationalism is that God has two plans, distinct plans, separate plans, one for Israel, one for the church. And classic dispensationalists would even go so far as to say that there were two different means of salvation. But most progressive dispensationalists fortunately deny that. So when you hear the Bible chopped up conveniently in this way, where it says, well, that's national Israel or ethnic Israel, and this deals with the church, or everything's neatly put in one of these two boxes, that's dispensationalism. And some classic dispensationalists will say that, for example, the Sermon on the Mount is not for the church, it was for Israel, who upon rejecting the kingdom and crucifying Christ, ushered in the church age, this parenthetical church age where God uh, now works with the nations. And God will later resume his work with Israel. The church is just this this parenthesis in God's work with Israel. So if you've ever had any exposure to the Ryrie or Schofield Study Bibles, if you've read or watched Left Behind, if you're familiar with Dallas Theological Seminary, Lewis Sperry Schaefer, not to be confused with Francis Schaefer, or John Walvoord, you've had some exposure to dispensationalism. And a pejorative term dispensationalists will throw against covenant theology is that it is replacement theology. It replaces Israel with the church. But look to what Paul says. He says that we are no longer aliens. We are citizens. What are we citizens of? We are fellow citizens with the saints. You Gentiles are fellow citizens with the saints. Now, which saints are in view there? Well, it has to be. It's the Old Testament saints. Now, the dispensationalists are seeing something here. We Gentiles are not part of national or ethnic Israel under the Old Covenant. We're part of a new humanity that replaces the two. Verse 15, Paul says, By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. As such, we are those true Jews who are circumcised not in the flesh, but in the heart, Romans 2.29, Colossians 2.11. We are the children of Abraham and heirs according to the promise, Romans 4.11-15, Galatians 3.29. So what is our relationship to the commonwealth of Israel? Well, we're not made Jews ethnically by the circumcision of the flesh. Rather, everything that that Old Testament Israel anticipated as the people of God, we've entered into the fullness thereof as the true Israel, the spiritual offspring of Abraham, 
heirs of the promise, a new humanity in Christ belonging to a new creation. When you read the Old Testament then, it's not as if all that Israel stuff has nothing to do with you. You've come into the fullness of it all. And this sets you up for the next question. What's our relationship to the covenants of promise? Now, in answer to the previous question, I hope you see that there's both continuity and discontinuity. There are things that remain the same. There are things that change. Because of Jesus, things have come into fullness. There is similarity and dissimilarity. This is why Paul doesn't exactly say you are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, but now you are no longer aliens to the commonwealth of Israel. Rather, we belong to the true Israel, the new humanity in Christ. Now, as far as just how much continuity and discontinuity there is, this is why Reformed Covenantal Presbyterians sprinkle infants, and we baptize those who make a credible profession. The argument over baptism, you see, goes much deeper than the text dealing simply with baptism. That's all another sermon series, and one that's planned in the future. But suffice it to say, as regards continuity and discontinuity, I believe both Presbyterians and Baptists have made some errors. The Presbyterians got carried away with the glue. The Baptists got carried away with the scissors. Nonetheless, I would contend the Baptists were much more sober in their use of the scissors than the Presbyterians in their use of the glue. And to catch something of the problem of continuity and discontinuity, look at verse 15 where you see that Christ, by his atonement, has abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, how do we make sense of that in light of Jesus' statement that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it? Matthew 5.17 And the answer, I believe, is that because of Christ, there are aspects of the law that are abolished because of the fullness we've now entered into. And we can see this in what we've already discovered. We're not part of the commonwealth of Israel as she was constituted in the Old Covenant. And this is because we've come into the fullness of what was foreshadowed thereby. So when we read the Old Testament, this abolishing spoken of here doesn't mean those things have nothing to do with us. Rather, we come into the fullness of what is revealed in them. But coming into this fullness means that things have changed. Some some have neat and tidy rules for how we determine what continues and what doesn't. Uh, such as a threefold division of the law into uh, civil, uh, ceremonial, and uh, and moral. But I don't find that distinction as it's so neatly used in the New Testament, and I find aspects of each of those tangled up inside of the other again and again throughout the Old Testament, so it's hard to unravel some of those things. I don't think that approach has a strong biblical warrant. I think you have to do the harder work of just reading the old in light of the new. You, you have to be taught by the new how to read the old. You need to read all the Bible through the lens of Christ. Now, when it comes to the covenants of promise, though, if dispensationalists let go of everything, Presbyterians, I believe, try to hold on to too much, and what I'm zealous for is that we learn how to grasp the fullness of what is ours in these covenants of promise, as those promises have been fulfilled in Christ. I don't want what you are no longer strangers to, the covenants, to be strange to you. When you pick up a Bible, I want you to know that there is a spine to it so that you can pick up the whole Bible as yours. Nothing falls out. I want you to realize that you come into the fullness of all that is in the covenants of promise. You come into that fullness in Christ. I want you to read the Bible with covenant in mind such that you can see that you're not strangers to the covenants of promise because... You are in covenant relationship to Christ. 
being in Christ means being in Christ covenantally. Now, where do I get that? That, that, uh, I don't, you, you don't see that in the text, do you? And this is what I mean. We fail to read the Bible covenantally, and thus we don't see things that are there. See, we celebrate that covenant reality every Sunday when we come to the Lord's table where Jesus instructs us that the cup that was poured out for us, the cup of which we drink, is the new covenant in my blood. Luke 22 and 1 Corinthians 11. Why study covenant? Because you've been brought near. And you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And the blood of Christ which brings you near is the new covenant. It is a new covenant blood bond. You are in covenant relationship to God through Christ in the Spirit. And that covenantal bond, that bond is a covenantal one. It is, it is in the new covenant that you are no longer strangers to all that was promised in the covenants. Saints, you are in Christ. You are citizens of heaven, members of the household of God, participants in the new covenant. You have hope. You have been brought near. God is your God. You are his people. He is with you. In covenant love and faithfulness, he has wed you to his son, and in the son you have all. As Paul tells the Corinthians, all the promises of God find their yes in him, and thus he instructs us. That is why we utter our amen to God for his glory. The covenants of promise, they find their yes in Christ. God says yes to all his promises, his covenant promises. He says yes to them, to us, as we are in Christ. And thus, we say yes, amen to God. We say amen to God's amen for his glory. We say amen to God's amen Jesus Christ and sinner. Should you say amen to Christ as Lord and Savior, know that God will say yes to his every promise to you. You will no longer be a Gentile, separated, alienated, estranged, without. You will have been brought near by the blood of the new covenant, the blood of Christ. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Ephesians 6, 23-24